This evening we're going to be in 2 Samuel, chapter 1. And we looked at the end of 1 Samuel, which we covered the last time, where King Saul and his sons die fighting the Philistines. Israel is now in disarray, but David has regained his relationship with the Lord, which leads ultimately to taking of Israel's throne as the king. You see blessings in David's life follow, following a restored relationship with God. And this was written several thousands of years ago, but the truth still holds true today for our lives as well. When we get off track, when we do things we shouldn't be doing, when we live a, life, uh, a lifestyle of fear, uh, what happens is when we have that restored relationship with the Lord, you'd be surprised all the blessings that follow it, not just the relationship itself. So we see that happening in David's life, and it's a good thing, um, and it's only going to increase from there. And tonight, the aftermath of both battles with uh, David and the Amalekites and the Philistines against Israel, led by King Saul and his sons, and each outcome is vastly different. I want to give you a little overview. I do this often when I start a new book. I think it's important to get the big picture. Who wrote the book? Well, it was, it's considered anonymous. However, uh, First and Samuel seem to be contributions from Samuel the prophet, Gad the seer, and Nathan the prophet, likely compiled and kept by the good prophets even after the authors and contributors had passed on. What's it about? Second Samuel records David's ascension to the throne. Unfortunately, it also records David's decline in morality. And if you're a student of the Bible, you'll really understand the pinnacle of that point was with Bathsheba and the adultery and the killing of her husband Uriah. So, a lot of um, denominations out there love to talk about prosperity, the prosperity gospel. But the truth is that prosperity can often lead to debauchery. You know, Agora said in the Proverbs, give me neither poverty nor riches, right? He didn't want riches either because he knew what that would have meant. So in David's situation, and we'll see this as we cover it towards the, he starts out really good. Unfortunately, there's that incident that has a lot of ramifications to it. So 2 Samuel begins with the death of Saul, but ends with the death of David. Where does it take place? Israel when somewhere between 900 BC and 722 BC, which was where Assyria had taken over and destroyed the northern capital of Samaria. Uh, verse 1, excuse me, chapter 1. It says, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziklag. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. So it was when he came to David that he fell to the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, Where have you come from? So he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Then David said to him, How did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, The people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead as well also. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? And the young man who told him said, As I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on a spear. And indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. 
So I stood over him and he killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. So a few things are happening in this aftermath. Number one, David is still in Ziklag. He's on the border of the Southern Territory. He makes a slow transition, as we'll see as we read this. He starts with the Southern Kingdom or the Southern uh, tribes, and then he eventually is accepted by all of Israel. So he, he doesn't force himself on the people, but he's still down south. Two, the Amalekite seemingly was in Israel's camp when the Battle of the Philistines or after that takes place, and Saul is just about, and his sons are pretty much getting defeated. But in default of King Saul, David is now seen as the leader. So you see, it's a really a section about transition. And three, this is the Amalekites' version of what happened, and we'll, we'll kind of break the, take that apart a little bit. Verse 11, Then David took hold of his own clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, Where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite. And David said to him, Well, how was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. The Bible records all history, whether it's good, bad, whether it's pretty, whether it's not pretty, it's all in here. It's honest. It's honest history. Um, hard to say what really happened. And scholars are really divided on this. Was the Malachite lying or was he truthful? If we look at scripture, 1 Samuel 31, 4 through 5 says that King Saul did fall on the sword and, his armor, and he died and the armor bearer did the same. 1 Chronicles 10 said that God did not allow King Saul to live through his injuries and eventually took King Saul's life. So that's what the Bible said. Could what the Amalekites said kind of be fit in there? You know, was there some embellishment? Did it happen at all? Was he an opportunist? I think at worst case scenario, the guy's an opportunist. At best case scenario, none of these are good. He's a liar and a corpse robber. Regardless, he thought that he would receive a reward from David for killing David's enemy. And it didn't happen that way. You see, David didn't see Saul as his enemy. You know, all throughout the scripture, you can see that David really hoped, and this was his father-in-law, actually. Uh, he wasn't just the king. He wasn't just his boss. He wasn't just his military commander. David had opportunities to take Saul's life, and he didn't do it. And I believe in David's heart that he just wanted them to be reconciled one day. But that didn't happen. So on the outside, others had a different view of the relationship with David and Saul. But they didn't know David's heart. Now, I don't know if David knew whether he was telling the truth or not, but he, he had him slain. And one thing about David is he really respected the office of the Lord's anointed. Now, when we look in the scripture... We're going to get confused unless we understand that King Saul had a dual role. So in some places, it looks like as we look at this lamentation, why is David praising him? But in other places, we'll see that he's an evil man. But Saul was two people. He was a man. You know, he was frail. 
And uh, he sinned greatly, and he distanced himself from the Lord to where the Lord took his spirit from him. So as a man, Saul was just a, you know, just thought he could always do it on his own, always scheming, always manipulating. He had a pretentious faith. But on the other hand, King Saul was the king. And if you were the king of God's people, it was a ministry. I've said this before from the pulpit. This was a ministry. There was an office that King Saul had filled. And David is very serious about not taking the life of the Lord's anointed. Now, some use this as a proof text. I've heard this said. I've never said it, but I've heard it said that when it comes to ministry, don't, don't raise your hand against the Lord's anointed. Um, I can see, I can have mixed feelings about that. And let's just talk about leadership. Let's talk about pastorship. When we're trying to serve God, there are going to be those who rebel, who fight against ministry, who fight against what God is doing in a church. You know, whatever we're trying to build up, every time we put bricks up, somebody's there sneaking to take a brick away. And that's a person who uh, pokes their finger at the Lord's anointed. I had a, a, a church Facebook post about eight posts ago, and I put up Charles Stanley, Dr. Charles Stanley's message about how to listen to God's word. And in Tuesday, August 7th, he spoke about those that listen for all the wrong reasons, and when they don't like what's coming out of the pulpit, they band together and they try to make changes, uh, change the pulpit because they don't like what they're hearing out of God's word. So this is what happens, unfortunately. Now, there's another extreme to look at, and I call that foolish loyalty. And we see it all the time in the news. Um, again, a friend of mine sends me text, text messages of clergy in New Jersey that have been arrested, that have fallen into sin. And you don't really see this on the mainstream media. I would think that they would love to put this out. But I cannot believe the frequency of when I get these texts. So these guys who are in leadership are clearly either breaking the law, living a lifestyle of sin and hypocrisy, or they're being anti-scriptural from the pulpit. And the other extreme are those that are foolishly loyal to them. Okay? That's a problem as well. So you can see both extremes there. But in, in this instance, in the ministry that King Saul had, David was serious about, listen, we're going to move on from here, but don't, you know, don't disgrace that office because he held it in high esteem. Now, the irony in all this is that the Amalekites, this man was an Amalekite, this guy on the battlefield collecting Saul's crown and bracelet, and look, David, I, he really is dead because this is his stuff, his signet ring, whatever he was collecting. But the Amalekites were always a source of trouble in the lives of the Israelites, and really due to King Saul's disobedience and not destroying them when God told them to. Uh, so it's kind of ir ironic how this comes around, and um, you know whether he did kill him or not, um, he's you know he's there at the end. But we have to look at when we read the scripture what God is trying to show us, and if we look at the Amalekites, they are a picture of the flesh, and the truth is. As King Saul left them to cause problems later on, even the battles that David had uh, with the Amalekites, uh, if we leave as born-again believers some of the flesh because it ministers to us or it comforts us or it gives us something that we don't think that God could give us, what happens is that will turn around to haunt us. It'll hurt us. It'll hurt our, our walk with the Lord. And, and the Christian walk really is that. It's a walk. Sometimes we're on the path, steady, Sometimes we're in the grass, sometimes we're down by the water, <laughs> and we're way off the path. And we kind of sometimes zigzag, we're on the path, we're off the path, but if we leave the flesh, 
and we don't destroy the flesh like the Bible says, it will come back to hurt us. And in verse 11, it says, David and his men mourned for the house of Saul. Can you picture the face of the Amalekite when he saw what? They're not rejoicing. They're not giving, throwing me a party. They're mourning because that's King Saul was dead. It wasn't just David. It was his men. Um, it reminds me of Ezekiel 33:11, where it says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Right? His desire is that all would come to repentance. We see that in the New Testament. So this is a God of justice. He must execute justice, but he doesn't enjoy doing it, especially on those that he loves and they're made in his image. You know, we have free will, though. I mean, we can choose to walk away from him. But he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. Death has a way of making us see things in a different light. And this is where David and his men are. Wow, Saul's really dead. And I'm sure it hurt even more that Jonathan was dead because Jonathan was a man of very high character. Um, you know, that's what we have going on here. Verse 17. Then David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the children of Judah the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. So David is lamenting. He's lamenting Jonathan. He's lamenting the death of Saul, the fact that he didn't turn around, he didn't reconcile. Uh, really, even lamenting the monarchy. And as we go through this lament, I'll speak about the different portions or components of this lament. Instead of just kind of reading it through and saying, oh, it's a nice, nice little poetic, uh, uh, heartfelt thing, there's, there's a lot to this. All right? In that culture, <laughs> people displayed their emotions, even the men. And I would submit that it's healthier than stuffing it. Now, in our society, it's more acceptable for women. And this is, listen, societal, how do these things come about? I don't know. But eventually they become ingrained. In our society, it's acceptable for women to display their emotions. But in some circles, it's not acceptable for men to display their emotions. It wasn't the case in that society. And I would agree that they have it right and we don't. Because when you don't, you know, if you try to stuff it, you ever hear that expression? You're stuffing it. You just keep stuffing it. You know, you're hurting, you're in pain. You don't feel that like you can talk to somebody. You're afraid to open up your mouth. And, and women do it too. And they stuff it. And eventually that becomes a powder keg and it, it'll explode one day. So here you see David pouring out his heart and just, you know, kind of going through the grieving process. The book of Jasher, in addition, was a book of poems and songs commemorating events in Israel's history. And we've heard about this in other places as well. Verse 19. Here goes. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. So here's a tragic situation. And it's going to become even more tragic if it keeps being repeated. And now the daughters of the Philistines, you know, the uncircumcised Philistines are rejoicing over this. Gath and Ashkelon were key cities in the Philistine stronghold. So it's awful when evil triumphs, but it's infinitesimally worse when God's people allow evil to triumph. This didn't have to happen. You know, God made conditional statements all the way back in the law. If you follow me, if you trust me, you know, this is what's, what the blessings that are in store for you. However, if you worship other gods, if you pull away from me, if you, if you... We have the same uh, conditional statements in English. Then these things will befall you. 
you know, you, the benefits of the relationship won't be there. Right? And, and it, it is, listen, no, nobody argue about free will because he, he lays it right out. Hey, here's the plan. You could either do this and this will happen or you can do that and that'll happen. It's your choice. This situation didn't have to happen. However, on a spiritual sense, there's also situations in our lives when we're off the path that don't have to happen either. You know, sometimes we, we have a tragedy in our life, but some of them are self-caused. Right? And we can all admit if we've been you know, a human being long enough, we sometimes cause our own problems. All right? So it says the mighty, the mighty have fallen. Now the word in, in Hebrew is gibor. As a matter of fact, I believe it's Isaiah 9 uh, where the different uh, traits and characteristics of, of the pre, prior to Christ coming, uh, prior to Christ, Christ coming, as a tongue twister there, uh, in the form of a man, he's called El Gibor, the mighty God. So this is a strong word. He says the mighty have fallen. Now these were the defenders, these were the protectors, these were the ones willing to stand in the face of the oppressors. In the United States, it's hard for us to understand invasion because we have two huge bodies of water, one on the east side at the Atlantic Ocean, on the west side of the Pacific Ocean. So we really have enjoyed benefits of water being a barrier to forces invading us, but it wasn't obviously not like that in most of the world, especially in Israel. And what you needed to do is you needed to put men uh, or women in some respects, in some cases, on those borders to defend the people. So the mighty, the, the soldiers, I mean, we would think about our soldiers today if they were on our borders protecting us from you know, assaults from the north, the south, the east, and the west. Uh, we can look at police officers, first responders. So this is a take Saul out of it, this, this office of those defenders, the mighty have fallen. You know? King Saul slipped into self-reliance, but he was anointed by God at one point, and he was tasked with defending children of Israel. What do we read the last time? that the Philistines came and they just had their way. They went through the different Israelite cities and the people were probably like, who's going to defend us? So now you're starting to get the big picture of this lament. And I'm sure when people read it and they repeated it, they said, yeah, we're dealing with right now. The Philistines have just taken over our city. You know, they're taking everything for themselves. Um, So that's a, you know, when God anoints us and when it comes to King Saul and it comes to us, when God anoints us, it isn't about us anymore. You see, our job when we're anointed by God is to glorify him. Unfortunately, King Saul missed that. You know, he let it be all about him. Self-reliance, you know, he had the looks, he had the height, he, had, he looked like a king. Uh, people would say, oh yeah, that's, he looks good in that armor and that sword and that, that big horse. Look how tall he is. Right? They said uh, George Washington was a tall man too. He looked very stately on a horse. Uh, and he actually was a, a pretty good target, but miraculously he... Um, he survived the, you know, the wars and all those kind of things. But people are weird. They judge by appearances. The Bible's very clear. And Saul probably let that get to his head. Look at me. I'm successful. I'm popular. So his reliance on himself increased and his reliance on the Lord decreased. But he was the Lord's anointed and he didn't take it seriously. Verse 21. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, nor let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For the shield of the mighty is cast away there, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. David's desire is that the geographical site of this awful tragedy 
would never be fruitful again. Again, understanding the culture, the Israelites were really big into symbols, remembrance. They often put stones in certain places where either God provided or key battles where they won or the crossing the Jordan. You know, we've seen those symbols. Uh, even today, the, Isra- the Israeli soldiers today, uh, they have a, a, like a ritual or a rite where they go up to Masada, where the Jews were, uh, you know, the Romans were going to annihilate them in the war between 66 and 70 AD, the Roman Jewish war. At the end, the Romans built siege ramps and were going to get them. And instead of becoming slaves to the Romans and being humiliated, they, all, they committed mass suicide. So even today, Masada in Israel, the Israeli soldiers of today go up there and they say, never again. They say this oath. There's even a sign up there. So the, the, even today, the Israel, Israelites are big into symbols and remembrances. So he says, the shield of the mighty has been cast away, defiled. The shield is anointed no more. Realization and finalization of the removal of the house of Saul. It's kind of sad when you go through it, right? I've got to tell you, I've got to be honest, I, I go through some of these things, I'm like, oh, it's a nice poem, but then I say, you know what, I really need to dig into this, and, and, and you know, it's important, we, we should look at each verse. 22, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. So it wasn't a total loss. These men fought hard, uh, and maybe... So many extra thousands of Philistines were slain so that they didn't oppress the people of Israel. They, with their last breath, they fought off these beasts, you know, these, these wicked men that were trying to invade. So there's a silver lining in essence. Verse 23, Saul and Jonathan were beloved and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. And this is, again, similar to almost a funeral eulogy. When we do a funeral, uh, you know, I don't, I've never been to a funeral where the preacher says awful things about the deceased, you know. It's a eulogy. You, wanna, you don't say that the person was a scoundrel and he, and he owes me $1,000 and didn't pay me back. I mean, you know, you wouldn't pay the guy for doing that for a family member, right? So there's a eulogy here. There's, a, you know, trying to say some good and, and show the good. Now, Jonathan had a lot of good, but Saul didn't have a whole lot of good at the end, but this is sort of his eulogy. It's a funny uh, account of two brothers, John and Bill, and this new young pastor comes into this congregation, and John and Bill are just, they're, they're brothers, and they're difficult, and they're really, they pretend to be Christians, but they're scoundrels. And uh, he has a, a tough time with these brothers. And one day Bill dies, and John is left. And John says, not only are they difficult, but they're wealthy, and they have some power. So the, um, Bill dies, and John goes up to the preacher, and he says, I tell you what, preacher, I'll give you a million dollars if you say in the, in the funeral that Bill was a saint. And the preacher thought about it, and he goes, he took the check, right? So he does the service, and he speaks about Bill that died. And then he says, his last line was, um, he said, Bill... He said that, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm messing this all up now. Okay, Bill died, and he, he says how difficult the two brothers were, but he says, compared to John, Bill was a saint. You get it? So he said he was a saint, he took the money, he was tr- truthful, but it really wasn't a... All right, forget it, let's move on. <laughs> I even messed up the joke. Verse 24. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxury who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. 
So King Saul started off well, and we could compare him in this case to a president. What is David saying about Saul? He's saying that he raised the standard of living to the Israelites. I know we don't have a king. Some of our presidents act like they're the king, but we, we don't have a king. We have elected officials. Now, so we have to look at their culture and see what he's speaking about. The king didn't have to do anything but ingratiate himself. However, he did raise the standard of living to the Israelites, and David wanted to point that out in this lament. Verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Now David's love for Jonathan here stands out from Saul. He says, surpassing the love of women. These men had a tremendous bond. It's, it's different, again, from our culture. However, if you've been in combat or you've been in the military, you can understand this culture. You know, we, we have soldiers that are stationed all over the world, and uh, the idea is that they're fighting to keep our democracy. Uh, some wars we're involved in are Real, pretty righteous, some not so righteous. But the bottom line is, they're out there defending us. And when you're in battle and when you're in combat or in some type of quasi-military organization, the person who's helping you stay alive becomes your brother, becomes brother uh, closer than your own blood. And you talk to some veterans, and that's, you know, you talk to veterans and you really get a wealth of information and understanding. Too many men today are loners, even in the church. Why in our culture? Because maybe things are too easy. You know, leave, put the military aside, notwithstanding. Um, oftentimes where there's not a common cause to unite, men can be isolationists. The Bible says, Proverbs 18.1, he who isolates himself seeks his own desires. He rages against all wise judgment. God did not make us to be loners, especially not Christians. And that's why men, especially Christian men, get in trouble. Because what does the wolf do when he sees the pack? Right? Satan is the wolf. He's the roaring lion seeking to devour. And this is for ladies as well. He sees the pack and he sees he's only one wolf and there's a pack of lambs. And any of those lambs individually he can take. But if there's 50 of them, he's probably not going to do so well if they turn on him. So what does the wolf do? He looks for the ones that are maybe weak. They're straggling in the back, the sickly ones, the weak ones. He knows he can take them, separate from the pack, kill them, and have a nice meal. And that's what he does with believers, the devil. He looks for us to straggle. He looks us to be, for us to be isolated by ourselves, marching to the beat of our own tune. He picks us off, and then he has his way with us because we're not in the pack. God designed us to be in the body of Christ. You know, not a fingernail that's clipped off and kind of, you know, sitting on the side there. It's kind of gross, but you get the impression, all right? <laughs> so this is what's going on here. They had it right. You know, men banded together. Uh, 27, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. Again, this is the aftermath. This is the, you know, whatever the Israelites had. Bows, spears, uh, shields left on the battlefield, uh, probably the Philistines took it and used it as trophies or used it against, against the Israelites. So they might, they might have had their own weapons of warfare, you know. They're either destroyed, burned with fire, or they're being used against them. So either way, it's, it's a scourge. A few things to consider as we close. David sets a good example. 
to the nation of Israel. And wouldn't it be amazing if presidents, and, and there's kind of like an unwritten rule, even in the United States, that when you're a retired president, you really shouldn't criticize the guy who's in office. Some abide by that, and some are idiots. They just don't, and it's really divisive to the country. However, David set a good example in that, listen, what's gone is gone. Remember the good about what he did. At one time, he was anointed by God, and he did help defend the, the country, so knock it off. It's not going to be tolerated in my administration. I'm kind of coming from there to, to here. So you see the idea there. Respect the, the office of leadership. It's not always an easy job. Uh, David would not allow disrespect for the house of Saul. David would not allow disrespect for the Lord's anointed. And he might have even taken it to an extreme, but you've got to give him credit for his principles. Notwithstanding David's standards, there was a different aftermath with David and the Amalekites and with Saul and the Philistines. And it was linked to what? Their relationship with the Lord. One was good and one was bad. Both were bad at one point, but David had turned and started following the Lord, started praying again, started developing and strengthening that relationship with him, and, and this is what we see. But would, it would be a shame if we didn't look at this for our own lives. Number one, what about our own personal battles? Everybody here may be fighting a personal battle. Maybe your battle is with another person, which makes it even more complex. You know, you having a trouble with money? You know, money's not, money's money. When it's with another person, what if it's another believer? Right, so how are our personal battles going? Are we doing any of those battles, fighting any of those battles in our own strength? And better yet, are we on the side of righteousness? We don't want to be fighting a battle and we're not on the side of righteousness. And then another contiguous question is, is our relationship with the Lord in good shape? We can see the parallels of the, the, um, the Gospel of John that we're covering on Sunday. Jesus is really hammering home. And this Sunday, it's going to hit a fever pitch to the point where in, in you know, the last few verses, they pick up stones to try to kill him. I mean, he really hits him hard between the eyes with the truth. And he's speaking about relationship. He didn't call us to be converts and stragglers. He called us to be disciples, to be followers, and to abide in his word. That means to remain, to live in his word. A lot of powerful uh, definitions for that. A pretentious faith only gets us instability and in serious situations much worse. Much worse. Um, Saul had a pretentious faith. Towards the end, it was just window dressing. And even Samuel called him out a few times, and certainly the Lord did. Jesus wants us to have a strong relationship with him. So as we close today, we need to ask ourselves, where are we with the Lord? Well, here's the good news. Not only that the Lord came to save us, that's great news. But the good news is this. Even right now, at this very moment, if our relationship with the Lord is not well, it can be. We could, it's as simple as being convicted as we're sitting in these pews or I'm standing here at the pulpit and to say, you know what, I'm just meandering and the Lord hasn't moved. He's, he's, he's in a fixed point. Um, we can always cry out to him and have it restored. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you.